Did you want to leave the video on or you want to turn it off? Um, doesn't matter. We can leave it on. It's fine. Probably won't. not going to look at you though. All right. So, Sharice, the recording of our first podcast. How are you feeling? Um, I, you know, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was like, I have to think about sounding smart, which is probably like not the right way to go about it. But like, that's what I was thinking about. I think, I think putting too much pressure on yourself is a, a recipe for disaster. Okay. So it right just, now I just work on not feeling pressure. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? We ran through a little bit of, I guess, structure, especially since the first quote unquote pilot. Maybe we start off by introducing ourselves. Do you want to go first? Um, yeah, I'm Sharice. I've been working with you and Alex on Macon since July of last year. So when I started out with you guys, I was doing design things because that's what I do for a day job. Well, like that's what I do for other people besides you guys. And then now I do more of community and I guess the side of Macon that's user facing right now is how I would describe. That, that's a I fair do. assessment, I'd say. Yeah. I guess I'll do a little bit intro by myself. I'm Eugene. I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Macon. You know, besides from editorial, I do a lot of other things, which is kind of what happens when you're a co-founder. I mean, you'll probably it'll probably unveil itself over the course of, you know, maybe this podcast. Not not even just it, this episode, but going forward. Um, but I think one thing that is is important is that in in this current day and age, when anybody and everybody can start a podcast, what 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 do we see missing in in the podcast space, which necessitated this? I think before we started recording, um, you and I have interesting conversations already. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure many people have interesting conversations between the two of them. But I think that we talk about a large variety of things, which is one of the things we've identified is unique about making users, people who are interested in tech and art and hip hop and good food and just a whole variety of subjects. One thing that we also wanted to do was find a way to like put down ideas and thoughts yeah. as we were talking onto paper and pen. Some of it might be from our Macon briefing, which for those who you don't know, it's a, it's a newsletter we send out twice a week that kind of highlights some interesting, yeah, some interesting cultural news, stuff that hopefully is not, not you know, something you'd find everywhere else. You know, for example, like the new Apple releases is something that we deliberately didn't want to talk about, but we'll talk about here. I guess maybe we'll just jump right into it. Go for you know, it. First, first and foremost, uh, I thought that was really interesting when Banksy put together this little campaign where he was trying to encourage people to vote a certain way in exchange for a free print. Okay, you know I and thought that about was happening. it. Okay. Yeah. So this is my thought. Sorry, I cut you off at the end there because I was so excited to tell you this. I don't think anyone was going to vote conservative just to redeem the print. I don't know. I th I think that it it it's kind of some people make a farce out of that, and it's like, yo, if a Banksy print can be worth upwards of, I don't know. Let's just say, let's just throw out an arbitrary number. Let's say it's worth a thousand pounds. Okay, that's a thousand pounds for for someone who's from a voter perspective might be apathetic in the first place, you know. Oh. And they might even even that perspective of oh, my vote one vote doesn't really make a difference. Okay, so. You know? So I actually think you hit on what I think it did do is that it made voting appealing to young people, which 
Admittedly, the UK has, well, globally, there's a problem with this where young people are not yeah. going out to vote. So, I mean, I understand why it's illegal, but I also thought that it was clever because in my opinion, it, I don't think anyone was going to vote conservative that wasn't already, you know, and vote for labor if wasn't already. Um, but it might have gotten a bigger turnout. Got it. I, part of me wonders. And, and it's this is this is obviously a much larger debate, but the way that you incentivize people to to care about things, I've, it's always going to be in question, right? Like I, I always look at any sort of right. incentivization through product. Um, I always look at the Toms or the, like the Live Strong model, where mm. here you have big, really big ideas that have been distilled to essentially a, a consumer product. Right. And what does that actually say when when your involvement <sighs> is really just through a product? And that to me is I understand the power and impact. You know, like having something tangible is super powerful. But the fact of the matter is is that your your the actual intent behind it is a little bit misconstrued. And that to me I think needs to be addressed because it's like if these people don't care and they're only doing it in exchange for a print. There's, I think there's deeper ramifications there that need oh, to be addressed. Oh man, man, that's, you just opened a whole other can of worms because it's like the idea of charitable giving that is linked to also a commercial product and whether or not, you know, if someone gives, does it matter if they partially gave for reasons other than believing in the cause? Yeah, uh, I always, to, to that point, a good example is whenever you have Sportswear companies getting involved in particular yeah. uh, social movements, like NBA whether cares. It's, NBA cares could be one. It could be even Nike or Adidas releasing um, "Be True." Well, Nike releasing "Be True," which is their um, their their product that kind of speaks to the openness and and um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Basically, a sense of openness to sexuality, right? Like, uh, or even I Black see. History Month. Those to me are are interesting because it at the end of the day does it allow does it create awareness one hundred percent I think there has to be you just have to come to terms with the fact that it's a soft selling tactic where it's like yeah hey you know what this is my my point of injection where you might not have cared about this um, had the shoe not released yeah. but at least it's a, it's in front of you and I for better or worse I don't think you can really fault. Um, brands for doing that. I mean, it's a bit of a PR thing, no doubt. Which it's still, it's still, and it's still net positive. If, if, if yeah. there's any other way for me to look at it, it's still net positive. Yeah, I think that's a good way to phrase it. Um, I think there are some unsavory things about brands doing that for their own imaging, but I'm also not opposed yeah. because if it works, like I would rather people be aware and noticing these problems than unaware. And no one furthering the cause. Got it. Yeah, Though, I think that's when you, kind of part of this oh question God. that you asked me when we were going to talk about Banksy was the thoughts on the power of art in political messaging. Okay, like that was your phrasing. And yeah, that's how I kind of was like, you know, talking about it. What beforehand. I wanted to ask is have you noticed that there's like this inverse correlation where political situations get worse and then art gets better no i haven't i have never thought of it that way okay can you Honestly, think about my, it and tell me what tell me if i'm wrong or like if you have any observations on that i i would i mean it, it 
it does make sense on the basis that the emotional impact is arguably stronger when things get worse, right? Right. And you, I think there's a little bit more restraint in what you're doing. But I, what what actually might make it easier is that contextually it becomes such a well understood idea. Like the 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 piece that Banksy ultimately was going to release was um, his. It was like his iconic girl with the with the balloon floating away, mm-hmm. but the balloon was uh, created as a Union Jack. And mm-hmm. I think actually in reality, that's pretty powerful. It's so simple, but. Even if you've never seen any of Banksy's previous work, I think it's very fitting. Yeah. Which maybe to your point, it's like when political when the political climate is a little bit sour and everyone is under under the same um, or everyone's familiar with the same topics, there there reduces the level of of explanation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I think that's arguably that's that what makes it more powerful, even more powerful, if you know you have fifty million people that are all familiar with. Um, what this means without really even being familiar with Banksy as an artist, his previous work. That's actually a pretty good point. Like I've never looked at it because I've I've never seen like in a chronological order of like what art looked like then and then now based on a political climate. But that's something that's worth exploring. Yeah, I, I, I stand by my um, hypothesis and I'd be interested if I could pull up relevant numbers on like, people's engagement and the impact. I don't know how you quantify like the impact of art, but I suspect that it's higher now. Yeah. Maybe we can, maybe we can move on to the next topic. Sure thing. Um, Apple releases. So admittedly, I'm not, I'm not an Apple user aside from using an iPhone. So honestly, whenever these release, I feel, and this is me, this is my kind of my my overarching theme about Apple computer products is, I mean, I'm not going to switch an Apple. Apple why don't you Why don't you tell people soon. what your setup is? Uh, it's always, you know, it's funny because when it comes to my divulging what I use, sometimes I just don't even bother because it the natural the the natural course of the conversation is like, oh, I thought you were an Apple, you'd be an Apple user. I'm like, well, I'm not like. And this dates back to like, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I was like, dude, I don't, I don't, my, I grew up in a, in a PC household. And then when it took, when it was time to actually buy my own computer, I was like, man, I don't want to drop money on an, on an, on a MacBook. So I've never really diverged from that path. And even then, like I was, for me, like PCs 100% work for me. They fulfill what I need to do. Arguably, I've never been very heavy into the visual side of design and, and creation. But it's always been something like, especially like Lenovo, mm-hmm. even though it's a Chinese-owned company, which a lot of people tend to shit on, it's it still does a decent product. You know, it's up to mil spec. It the keyboard's solid. That's honestly one of the main reasons why I always go back to, to that, Lenovo. But that makes sense. the ultimate the ultimate thing is that like pricing and I guess even from a philosophical standpoint of of open versus closed, like I just teeter more on the open side, mm. you know. But I have to say, when I started using an iPhone, the thing that keeps bringing me back is just the app ecosystem is so much more refined. I mean, I haven't used an Android phone in, you know, probably like a year and a half. And like when I left that system, I was like, and went to Apple, I was like, man, everything is so much more considered. Everything works so much more seamlessly. Albeit, there's certain things that I really hate about it. Like it just seems hard to get. Files off your off your phone. 
Okay. But aside from that. So for you,、yeah. as a non-Apple user, okay, and also someone who is not really in the market for any of these Apple products, right? Like you're not seriously looking. What you stuck、yeah. out the most from the keynote? Like, what would you say was the most significant <laughs> announcement? Well, I've, I've, what the most significant one was probably the release of the Pro, just because I've heard the grumblings for far too long. <laughs> yeah,、um, that's one thing. But the thing is, is that I don't know anyone that owns a Pro, and I'm not talking about the MacBook Pro. I'm talking about like the the desktop, right? You mean the like,、um, yeah, the, the five thousand dollar machine? Well, so. But、This、to, to finish actually, my point, so I did some research. Point, okay, so you finish your point first. Let me finish, finish my point. point. Yeah, I will let you finish it, your it, point. It's as as nice as it is. Okay. I don't know any of my friends that are gonna be that are that are gonna go out and buy it. You know what I mean? So it's like it's almost a moot point. It's like it's a nice to have, but I mean the reality is everyone's moving around. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like it's nice, but it's it's such a small percentage of users that I'll probably never see one in the flesh. Okay, so wait. I had a clarity clarification clarification to make to our conversation yesterday, which is off the record about this. This is the first iMac Pro ever released. Okay, but you could argue, hey, couldn't Apple have just called it an iMac and this be like the newest iMac instead of tacking a Pro to the end of it? Whatever. Let's just call this the newest, the new, completely new machine, the Pro that you're referring to. I think you're referring to is actually a standalone computer, so no display. Yeah, it's a desktop, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a desktop. It's like a triangular prism kind of shape, and that they are still going to update in like 2018 or 2019. So, like this iMac Pro isn't their answer to not updating that machine. Yeah. But I mean, I look at it, and honestly, back to your question, what's most exciting? I only I've, I'm still waiting for it to materialize. But Apple has been such an influential player in the podcast world, and they're apparently going to update their podcast app and just how they serve podcasts. And、mm. obviously, as for us being so heavily focused on sights and sounds, yeah, seeing what 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 the what the reality of that will be is going to be pretty exciting.、Yeah. I'd say because I mean. That and it's almost all the stuff that they've released have that was exciting to me has been the software side of things. Because、mm-hmm. um, the hardware, to be honest, like it's you can get cheaper equivalent hardware somewhere else.、Mm. You know, it's a it's a software for me that Apple actually does a great job、yeah. for the most part. Yeah.、Um, but I mean, even things like you know the ability to pay friends with Apple Pay going forward, like yeah. Yeah. just by virtue of. Apple being this sort of、um, this omnipresent thing in so many people's lives. Yep. I mean, that's that in itself is going to be really amazing. I also came across a really interesting point in that you know you have all these companies that have different sort of monetization and like roads to monetization. Obviously,、mm-hmm. with Apple, you're buying hardware, right? You're buying that user experience with hardware. Um, let's use Google or YouTube. I mean, YouTube's probably a, be- a better example. YouTube's YouTube and Facebook are monetizing through advertising, right? Right. So, what is the actual experience that they're going to create for users when you know I need to I need to serve you ads,、yeah. and you as like a user, I need to serve you. <laughs> I'm going to use this word because it's it was funny. It was mentioned in Slack. 
um, a delightful oh my hardware God. experience, you know? For those that, that aren't familiar, like we had this little conversation in, in the Slack community about words we hate from, buzzwords we hate from the agency world. And one of the members, uh, Wayne, just, he had a massive disdain for the use delightful or delight, creating delight through experiences. Okay, so your question is about um, companies that monetize through advertising and how that appears well, on Apple hardware? No, it's more how will the user experience be when I'm optimizing for advertising versus the user experience when I'm basically optimizing for a purchase that pertains to hardware. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But I mean, someone I, in, that, in that whole dialogue, like someone actually uh, made a good point where if you distill and strip away all of it, the, the actual reality is they're both trying to earn your trust, right? So yeah. they're earning your trust through um, like a social media platform versus they're earning your trust through a great hardware experience. So maybe it's actually not that different. You know, the end goal is the same. But I'm I'm just curious because I don't know the answer. I'm not familiar enough with with the the UX side of it, UX UI side of it, of right. how those different experiences will look and feel, right. despite the fact of the same goal. Huh. Well, I hadn't thought about that subject. Neither had I. And then it just like popped up in my. I was just reading some stuff this morning. But um, I did think about. Uh, you know, you're excited about the software changes and I agree with you, like they're exciting. And there's, there's updates to the watch OS, to series intelligence, to the home Siri, like the home pod that they came out, which is going to be the competitor for echo. Um, and my question is, do you think Apple might someday use all of this data? that they're gathering from this Apple ecosystem and sell it? Mm, no, because I think I, I don't think it's to their benefit because they're not, I think that this selling the, the data in itself to an outside party, like I think they would just internalize it and utilize it for their own benefit. But you think that would happen though? Like they're going to, you know. They, I mean, they, I'm sure it's already happening. I'm sure they're, they're, they're collecting massive amounts of data so does it to worry somewhat you? optimize. You know what? This is an interesting thing too, because I was thinking about it, and there's as much as we're all up in arms about privacy. Yeah. How many people like when when that little pop up comes up on your iPhone, allow? Yeah. Just allow. Yeah. <laughs> like allow. Right. Like it's 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 almost like a non-issue. People people are up in arms about privacy, but this is a thing too. Is that despite all the sort of um moments of privacy that we kind of let people into our lives. Yeah. Most of it pertains back to selling, the selling of something, which is not inherently malicious, right? Like if I allow someone to target me a bit better, it my, my life would, can generally be the same. I mean, I get targeted. I mean, we all get targeted so much, but I, I honestly can't say that I'm, I'm necessarily influenced by the targeting that comes across you know, in those instances. And that to me is something that, you know, are we, are we actually as worried about privacy as, as we say we are? I, I think mean, we're not. I will, one, I want, okay, I will answer your question um, or response to this, but I also want to tell you a funny story. 
I was at a coffee shop and I like to eavesdrop on people. So there's you told me the worst for this. Did I already? Heads up. You, you remember we tried to have a meeting in the office and you're like, I need to turn music on or I'm going to listen to this person's conversation. Ah, yeah. Okay. So you already know this about me. Yeah. So I've, I, you, you can't have a confidential conversation in my earshot. Just going to put that out there for anyone who encounters me um, in public. So I was listening to these two women and one of them was complaining to the other woman about why she switched to Android. Okay. She had an iPhone. She switched to an Android phone because she didn't like that when she bought a new app on the app store, the app store would ask her to re-enter her password. Her complaint was, I've entered it before. You should have my password saved and just let me buy the app on one touch. <laughs> All right. So, so this, yeah, woman, I mean- this woman is like, let's throw privacy out the window. Like just save all of my information, you know, make it super easy for me to do everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but to respond to your question, I think, I, I do think you raise an interesting point. It's like almost, oh, we should be worried about privacy. So we're saying these things or like, I'm saying these things about like, oh, what does Apple know? Right. But am I genuinely concerned? Like, is it going to change my habits? Can we go back one second to talk about the iMac Pro? Yeah. Why do you think that Apple developed this machine? I, I, there's, st- there's still part of me that believes that Apple needs to really have some sort of discussion. And I say discussion, I mean ex- like relationship mm-hmm. with you know, it's, it's core creators. And I think that's mm-hmm. one thing that Apple has always wanted to claim. Mm-hmm. It's like, is we, they need to have that relationship and that dialogue because it offers credibility, right? Yeah. You know, to know, to know that, oh, I mean, it's, it's probably bullshit, but like, oh, this piece of work was done on that machine. It's kind of like, it's no different than, you know, when you, when you're, when you're seeing billboards from iPhones, they're like, hey, shot by, so-and-so on the iPhone 7. Yeah. You know, I think the, those things are inherently thing, inherently opportunities for them to market. But I, I mean, I think it's also misguided for me to think that way, although I'm sure there's so many inner workings that exist. Is, but to, to create something for a marketing opportunity is probably wrong. You know, it's more, I think there is a genuine like desire to, to enhance and be a part of the, the conversation with high-level creatives. You know? I, I mean, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's a purely marketing scheme. Um, I, I do agree that it is in part a marketing scheme to be in touch with these creators and this, you know, that first niche Mac, that Apple user. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's that they have to still genuinely be and appear to be a company that is advancing technology. Yeah. And you, and I guess there's no way to fake that. Like they can't fake being a technologically advanced pioneer. So they have to actually make products that are still, you know, like people were calling this machine bonkers, right? Like their tech still has to be like, this hasn't been done before. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad that I'm actually glad you hit on the same thing as me that like a, a large portion of this is branding. Yeah. Yeah. 
Enough Apple talk though. Yeah. Let's move on to maybe the, one of the last pieces of the briefing was Kodak's new new print publication. Okay. You know, I Kodak has been such an interesting brand because I don't think there's been something that was arguably so present in the lives of so many people, like especially me growing up, like you know, when you thought of photography, especially in North America, like there was no Fuji really. Like it was always Kodak. The you know the the symbolism of that of that orange was everywhere. And then obviously within the matter of, you know, a generation and a half, I mean, I'm making that number up, but in a very short span, it basically disappeared from one of the, one of the, the major industries it built. So now like we're going into a place where a lot of things are returning to this analog world, mm-hmm. you know, handmade shoes, film, vinyl, mm. It makes me wonder if if that is sort of the 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 new and potentially final resting place of Kodak. And I say that not because it's going to turn over anytime soon, but it's more that hey, you know what? This is something they do incredibly well, and this is what people identify with them um, as. You know, being a company that produces, you know, Portra Four Hundred is is everyone's not everyone, but a lot of people love Portra Four Hundred. Mm-hmm. So why not just like play to that strength? Why and just, you know, forget all the other stuff. Forget about creating, you know, a digital camera, a mobile phone. Albeit, you know, I understand the business implications because that is where the future is going. But yeah. maybe for the time being, there's a way that, a strategy that allows them to get, to, to kind of have a foothold here before moving on to, you know, other opportunities. Do you think that Kodak saw this coming? Like, do you think Kodak knew that they were going to wind up in this position of being culturally cool, uh, that analog was going to come back around? No, I don't think so. So this just kind of fell in their laps. I don't think anyone could have predicted it because it's such a nuanced discussion. So So much of it comes down to kind of the, the, the social climate, right? The cultural climate. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if maybe the, the progression of digital wasn't as quick as it was, that burnout wouldn't have occurred. Mm. And then we wouldn't be pushed back the other way. Because I would see in many ways, analog is a pushback against digital mm. and the things digital doesn't do well or the, the fact it's so overwhelming, mm. right? Okay, so if you don't think Kodak planned this, like this, this just sort of fell in their laps, like they got lucky, is what you're saying, right? I, I would say, in many ways, yeah, there's there's a bit of luck because you can't really control. I I personally don't think there was enough that Kodak was doing to influence popular culture uh-huh. aside from creating a great product. Uh-huh. You know, there is influence in that, but I mean, people were just naturally finding Porsche 400. It wasn't like them being in the consciousness of consumers everywhere. Right. Just more like, hey, you know what? Portrait 400 or just whatever existing film, T-Max or whatever, like it's probably what you could buy your local store. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a gateway. You so, know? And I would say that, yeah, sorry. No, no. Uh, so if, if that's the case, what is Kodak supposed to do now? Or if you were at Kodak, what would you suggest that the tactic be? Because the tactic surely is not like, Let's just sit around, you know, people will continue to think we're cool. If I was, if I was at Kodak, honestly, I think you need to find a way to double down and create 
sustainability through the film movement. Mm. You know, and I, I say that because currently there there are bits and pieces of sustainability, but I think if you took, you know, two steps back, film as an industry, um, it's not hanging by a thread, but it could so easily have its legs knocked out from underneath it. Okay. You know, and a big part of that comes from there's no there's no cameras around. There's no film cameras that are being produced in 2017. Uh, I mean, you have some. You have like Lomography that is like the only sort of like probably modern day, not really modern, but it's the only new film camera you could buy. Right. But where you know how how is how is that industry or you know if you don't have working cameras in five years, ten years, like what's going to happen? Right. You know, I mean, it, you could use the you could use the argument that like. You know, if they're if if you're, oh, this this is probably stupid, but like, if you make a product for children, right, and you know, in ten years there are no children, you know, <laughs> then then what happens? Like, you, who are you going to service this product to? And I can I can speak from my own issues. Like, I've bought cameras off eBay, yeah. um, and you know they work for three months, and after that they're essentially dead. You can't even if you want to get it fixed. Either there's no expertise right. or people just don't want to deal with it. Right. So you need to kind of create the current demand is there. Uh-huh. Right. And this that but how do you make sure that one of the one of the most important parts of the usage of your product can be maintained? Right. I mean, from your perspective, how how do you see the current analog world playing out in terms of from a lifestyle perspective, do you see people continually finding ways to balance digital and analog? Because I think that's, you know, you and I probably have different digital appetites. You probably create things that I would never even touch. Like I would never, you know, whether it's illustration or whatever, mm-hmm. I don't really do that. Yeah. But I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. Right. Uh, which is which is funny because I'm the one drawing digitally and you're the one using an actual pen. I mean, I don't have, it's because I don't have a, a, <laughs> you don't have a tablet. We should trade. We should yeah. trade next time. Um, I keep thinking that there is going to be whiplash. That we're yeah. going to reach some saturation point with analog handcrafted things. And then it's going to go back again to digital. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if I say that out of like a fear, like uh, man is like just a trend. I wish it was going to stick around, but real people's attention spans are short. Or if yeah. I say that because, you know, like, like, so one is either out of fear and I want it to stick around. Or if I think that people are just kind of, this is such a shitty thing to say about myself, but like, I don't like that people are sort of adopting this analog culture. In some kind yeah. of ingenuine way, which is terrible. I know for the for the quote unquote coolness of it, because that's what everyone else is doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also wonder if analog is like a is is going to be a phase that everyone goes through in the future. I don't think it will be. The reason why I don't think it's a phase is because analog is in, is humanistic, mm. and when people understand, you know, the value of doing things. From a, it's a word I overuse a lot, but like just from a humanistic perspective, it's. I think the value is undeniable. No, I mean like, uh, sorry, I meant a life phase, like, 
like current. Oh, yeah. Like when kids become thirteen, they're gonna be like, "I hate my devices." You know, someone give me a film camera. Someone give me pen and、yeah. paper. You know, and then like from now on, every teenager from like thirteen to twenty-five is gonna have this analog phase of their lives. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a good point because I there's a lot of times when I pull out a film camera and a lot of people resonate with it because it was part of the youth and now it's no longer right part of their youth per se. Yeah. You know, but I it comes down to certain things. Is like the accessibility of it is important. Like the fact of the matter is, is like if you want to get into film photography right now,、mm-hmm. even finding a camera is not the easiest thing. It's not like you can go、True. into a store. Or、True. go on Amazon and buy a new one. It's like, oh, you know what? How do I buy you anything? Anytime you buy something used, there's so many questions. Like,、yeah. am I getting ripped off? Is this gonna work? You yeah. Know? And I think that's that's one of the key parts of sustainability. Which photography, honestly, film photography will struggle relative to other mediums. I'd say, like you know, in the sense that when it comes to vinyl, I think there's a greater sense of Well, I mean, I'm, I don't DJ, so I don't know what the what it's like to get a new a new set of turntables. You know, obviously, all other all other forms of analog art generally quite accessible. Pen and paper, that's not going to go away anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting point. Yeah.、Um, so it's funny because we've actually already been talking like forty minutes, and so maybe on that note, this is where we end things off. Yeah, that's fine. It's fine with me.